you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. I know there was a couple of announcements this morning that if you would like to help with nursery or children's church, then see PJ. Uh, but PJ is in the doctor's office with flu and possibly pneumonia this morning. Uh, so I would encourage you not to see her today. Uh, matter of fact, I'm thinking about not seeing her today. Um, and I'm married to her. So uh, if you would like to help in those things, you can give me your name and I will definitely uh, let her uh, contact you. Uh, sadly, she would know a lot more than I do uh, about those things. Matter of fact, she may know a lot more than I do about everything. Uh, but at least those things, I know she knows a lot more than I do uh, about those. So if you would like to help in those, you can definitely let me know and I will have her contact you. But be in prayer for her. She will be out this evening, but we will have somebody with the children. Um, and it looks as though she'll be under the weather for a little bit. So um, this morning, uh, Mark announced that this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday is a Sunday that Southern Baptists set aside to emphasize that we believe all life is sacred. St. Augustine writes a book called The Confessions, which is a great piece of literature, but, but it's a great piece of, of theological work as well. And, and what you find in St. Augustine, at least in one portion, is he and his friends get together and they're looking over a fence row and they see these figs. Uh, and as they see the figs, they decide that they're going to go and steal the neighbor's figs. And, and they go into the neighbor's yards and they steal the figs and he comes back and he begins to start contemplating why did I steal the figs? Did I steal the figs because I was hungry? Well, no, I wasn't really hungry. Did I steal the figs because I needed them? No, I didn't need them. And he goes through this kind of process where he's analyzing what in the world made me do this. And he says, you know, I was with a group of friends. Did I do it because my friends wanted to do it? No, there was something internal within me that also wanted to do it. So he's kind of going through this process of just looking within, very introspective and saying, why did I sin? Why did I do this thing? And basically what he says then about sin is kind of one of my favorite passages about sin in theological work. He says, sin is an entangled mess, and who can unentangle it? So, so basically what he says is that it's just all this stuff is kind of mixed with our emotions and our motives and, and what our heart is and what we desire, and all this stuff gets jumbled up together, and it's really unclear why we act in the way that we do many times. I think sometimes we look at sin as a very simplistic thing. I think sometimes we are able to just say, we're going to call that sin and we're not going to participate in that. And I think today is one of the days that we highlight that. See, in many pulpits this morning, there are churches that will have pastors stand up before them and just make a proclamation that abortion is wrong and we need to get past it and things of that nature. And I, I, I absolutely believe that we do need to get past that, but I think it's a much more complex issue than just making declarations from platforms. And there's a lot of things that go into the issue, and some of them are reflective on us as individuals. See, each and every time I pass the Catholic schoolyard where they put the crosses out that represent each child that has been aborted in our lifetime, I not only think about the poor mothers that made that choice and the children that did not get to enter this world, but I also think, what, what would we do with those children if they did come into the world? We don't have a system in place. Right now, DHS is overrun with children with no places to put them. We don't have the people to care for them. We would have brought children into this world with mothers who would not have been able to care for them, fathers who would not have been able to care for them, and we have no mechanism in place to care for them. And we sit back with easy judgment upon those who make bad choices, but we offer nothing to help. 
It is not only their sin, it is our sin as the church. It is our sin as the people of God. We need to be involved in these ministries. We need to be involved in these aspects. There is hurt all around us, and if we are not doing the things that we need to do to answer that hurt, then it is our responsibility as well as their responsibility. Guys, we cannot cast dispersions and judgments upon people who we think sin when we ourselves are sinful in so many ways. And I'm not talking about just a simple drop in a bucket. I appreciate what we are doing for the Pregnancy Support Center. I appreciate the things that are being brought, and we'll take them by, and I will tell you that there will be much love poured over them. But guys, those are, these are complex issues that we ourselves must invest in on a daily basis. These are complex issues that we must be concerned about, we must pray about, and we must seek answers to. It is a call upon our life. It is not simple enough for us to sit back and ask the world to think of individuals as sinners and for us ourselves not to be involved in the situations that will help them in life. The Christian call is a high call. It is a call that I only not be self-reflective about the sin in my life, but what in the world am I going to do about making this world a better place? What answers am I going to provide? I can remember one day I was sitting at a table while PJ was in law school and we were having dinner with a number of her friends and one of them was the attorney general at one time of Arkansas, very important lawyers and impressive people. And I was kind of waxing eloquently about all the problems I saw within the world and the system and the structure. And he just paused me for a second. He said, I'll make you king for a day. What would you do? And it kind of hit me that these are complex issues. They are not easy answers, but there are answers out there, and we believe that God gives us power to invest in these issues. We need to be involved in those things. But I challenge you, as you look at the world and as we talk about sanctity of life and as we talk about these issues in our world, do not only see the responsibilities of others as they play a role in the life that we live. Think about our responsibility ourselves and think about the responsibility of our church. I had an individual one time... um, He walked up to me, and I'll just be honest with you, if you judged a book by its cover, he would have never appeared to be a Christian. I mean, he looked like a rough fella. I mean, he was tattooed from top of his head probably to his feet. I didn't see his toes, but I imagine some of them had tattoos on them. Looked like a rough character, talked like a rough character, but he worked with youth within his church. And my brother and I were sitting there talking about some of the youth ministry we're doing, and he invested in us in a conversation, and he asked us to pray for him because he had a youth at his church that he was working with, and she was considering abortion because the child was determined that it would have a disease when it came here and she would not be able to care for it. And he asked us, he said, pray for me and my wife because we're thinking about adopting that child. And he said, the doctor thinks we're stupid because it's going to require so many surgeries and so much out-of-pocket expense. He said, but I just feel so strongly that if I'm going to tell this girl that it is wrong to abort the child, then I need to be involved. That's somebody who not only proclaims something is wrong, but is willing to invest to make something right. And I'm not saying that we are all called to do that. I'm not saying we are all people who need to go adopt children. Some of us don't need to adopt children. Some of us need to pray about what is the situation is in the world. But there are ways that we can invest. But one thing we can do for certain is not judge individuals for participating in sin when we ourselves are guilty oftentimes of nothing else of apathy. Be very careful in the way that you look at the world and those who live in the world. 
and be very careful when we judge anyone for what they've done or what they care to do. Guys, as Christians, we are called to be active. We are called to be responsive. We are called to make a difference not only in our life, not only in the life of the church, but in the life of the world in which God has placed us. Part of what Paul's challenge in Colossians is, is one, he tells us what we have gained. He tells us who God is, and then he tells us what the expectation is upon our life. And I kind of want to walk through that process today. What is it that we gain in Christianity? Who is it that Christ is? Who is it that we serve daily? And then what expectations does that bring about in our life as we address these concerns that exist within the world that is around us? In Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Um, mind me, property and grounds. Let's talk about a little AC unit up here under the pulpit. I can speak of it. I can just get some air flowing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love of, uh, you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our, uh, on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from hope, held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I feel up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. 
for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become a servant by the commission. God gave me present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in me. Here Paul speaks to a church about kind of what has taken place in their life, what has happened in their life, what has brought them together as a church, why they exist as the body of Christ. Listen to what he says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope. Notice that there are three virtues that he mentions in this passage. They are the same three virtues that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and Thessalonians chapter 1, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul talks about these three virtues constantly. They are faith, hope, and love. They are arranged differently depending upon the passage that you look at, whether you're looking at 1 Corinthians, whether you're looking here at Colossians, or whether you're looking at Thessalonians but they are the same three virtues. Paul sees these as three foundational virtues within life. If we are looking at the Christian life and what should have been brought about in our life, then we should identify with faith, hope, and love. Notice that he kind of ties faith and love together with hope. What brings about faith and what brings about love in our life is the hope that we have in Christ, a hope that has already been realized knowing that we are not defeated, nor will we ever be defeated, for the victory is ours, and that it is eternal hope. St. Augustine said one of the things that is absolutely essential in the Christian faith is that we believe in eternity, and the reason for it is it gives us a hope that transcends this reality. It gives us a hope that transcends our world and this life, where we see everything as transient, as we see everything passing away, and slowly reaching its demise, now we have a different kind of hope, a hope that goes beyond this world, a hope that goes beyond our life, a hope that is real. And that hope in us is is supposed to inspire faith in Christ and faith in God. So we are a people who need to live by faith, not by sight, not by the things that we understand, not by the things that we live by, but by faith. In other words, a faith that there is a God, a faith that we have a purpose, a faith that God has changed our life, a faith that God is working in us and through us to change the world that is around us. That kind of faith is what promotes our life. That kind of faith is what has been given to us through God himself. Love. It is impossible to love the way the scriptures calls us to love unless we understand what God is and who God is. Guys, to truly come to a place of love, we must understand who God is. 1 John basically identifies this very fact that the way we understand what love is is through God the Father who is love. I'm not quite sure we can love in the way the Scripture calls us to love unless we have a relationship with God. Can you be in love? Can you have a relationship of love? Can you love your mother and your father or your brother and your sister or your wife or your husband without being a Christian? I would say in in typical terms, yes, you can. 
but can you love in the way the scriptures call us to love without a relationship with God? I would say absolutely not. God teaches us how to love. He is love. If one does not know God, then one does not know true love. See, love is a complex issue. Plato actually writes a, a, a dialogue on it called the Symposium where Socrates investigates the nature of love. And I will just tell you, it is a word that we use all the time. Sometimes we talk about relationships between individuals, a husband and a wife. Sometimes we talk about the meal relationship. Sometimes it's just simple to talk about the food that we really like. I love pizza. And when I say that, I mean it. Uh, I'm not saying it loosely. I love pizza. I still pass by that buffet going to my house up there, the new one. I ain't tried it yet. But every time I pass by, it's like my truck has lost its alignment. It just wants to turn in. It just keeps going right, and i got to fight it to keep it straight. I love me some pizza. We use that term all the time. It is a complex term that many of us don't understand what we're saying when we really use it. If we're going to love in the way God calls us to love, because it is not a simple love. It's not a love just of acceptance. It's not. Jesus says that he loves us. He sacrificed everything that he was for us, but Jesus also calls his disciples to far greater things than they would have ever perceived themselves to be. Does he accept them where they are? Yes, but does he leave them where they are? No. Guys, when we love somebody the way the scriptures teach us to love them, we absolutely accept them. We bring them in. We embrace them, but we don't leave them where they are either. We walk with them. We cry with them. We rejoice with them, and we teach them what it is to be Christian. That is the kind of love that we experience from God, and when we experience it from God, then we are to share it with one another within the church and within the world that we exist. We have faith, we have love, and it springs forth from hope. May we never lose that eternal hope that God gives us. Guys, one of the things that is tragic in life is when someone has lost all hope. What keeps us going what allows us to put one foot in front of the other, what allows us to accomplish the things God's called us to is that we always maintain that hope. That hope then inspires both the faith and the love that is a part of our life, and it all comes simply through God. In chapter 1, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 1, uh, look where he says in verse 6, that has, uh, it has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, the dear fellow servant who is faithful minister of Christ. So the, the gospel, when it takes root in one's life, it produces fruit and it grows into producing fruit. And in our life and in the church's life, we must be constantly producing this fruit. He says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he prays for this church constantly, that what God has done in them, he will open up their eyes to see his good purpose, his will, and open them up to the knowledge of his will so that they might truly understand through spiritual wisdom and understanding. If our church is to do the things that God has called it to do, then we must pray that God will open up our minds and our hearts to his understanding and his will and that we might pursue those things diligently. Guys, there's a constant struggle in life whether we're going to do the things we want to do or whether we're going to do the things God wants us to do. 
And that is a constant struggle. That is a struggle every day of my life. When I came to, to understand Christ as my Savior, that is not a struggle that ended for me. That struggle renews itself every single day. Am I going to do the things that Jeremy wants to do or am I going to do the things that Christ wants me to do? They're not always in conflict. Sometimes they line up. Sometimes I force them in my head to line up and I try to convince myself that God is wanting me to do what exactly I want to do. But there's always, in some ways, there, there's a part of that conflict that diverge in my life of the things that I want and the things that God wants me to do. At least there are moments. I mean, even if you think of the life of Christ, there's that kind of climactic moment at the end of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane where the wheels diverge. This is why he comes before God and he prays, if there's any other way, don't make me drink from this cup. Now, ultimately, he submits to the will of the Father, but you can see the divergence of those two wills even in Christ at that moment. In our life, that is going to be a continual point of surrender. If we're going to do the things that God wants us to do, then it is going to take some surrender. It's going to take us kind of stepping outside of, of our pride and, and, and our own selfish desires so that we might do the things God's called us to do and not the things we want to do. It's problematic in our society. It's problematic in our society because our society is based purely and utterly upon self-interest. John Rawls is a philosopher who writes about justice. And, and one of the things, his very uh, basic principle, and I actually think Rawls is right on this, is that everybody is driven by self-interest in our society. And he says, if you're going to write any form of justice, or you're going to talk about any form of justice in our society, the very principle that you have to begin with is the notion that everybody is driven by self-interest. I absolutely believe Rawls. Because I've lived in this society long enough to understand that almost everybody is driven by self-interest. We lack a sense of altruism. We lack the sense of giving without some type of expectation of return. And what we're driven by is self-interest. And when we come into the church, when we come into Christianity, what it says is yourself is supposed to die and you're supposed to live for another. Boy, that's difficult. Because now I've been trained that everything that drives me is self-interest. But now I've come to this position in life where I've been challenged by my Creator to die to self so that I might live for Him. And not just for him, but for others. For if I'm going to live for God, I must also live for neighbor. I must also live for others. That is a challenge. But that's what comes into us is the power to do that, to submit to that, and to seek that out. He goes on and he says, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life. Boy, there's just, just a lot of stuff packed into those passages. Listen to what he says being strengthened with all power. So he prays that you will live a life worthy of the Lord. God has done these things for you. God has brought you to a position in life where you can be cleansed of your sin and that you can live for him. And what Paul is saying is now I pray that you would live a life worthy of him. 
when we come to a place of salvation and we surrender ourselves, we recognize that we are a sinner. We recognize that sin is, is the death of us spiritually. And we have to lay that down and we come to Christ for salvation and for redemption so that we might be changed. Guys, it does not end there. What Paul is saying is that is the beginning point. That's where it starts. What God has now done in you has, has given you a desire now to live a life that is worthy of Him. What is a life that is worthy of of Christ, boy, it is a challenge to live a life worthy of Christ. That's not simple. When I was a youth minister, every single year I went to youth camp, I would have some of the same kids go down front and seek salvation. I could count on it. The last night of youth camp, I would have at least two of my kids, and I knew which two they were, go down front and seek salvation. I came to understand that it was not an issue of them seeking salvation. What it was is they had given their life to Christ. They just couldn't realize that living the life that is worthy of Christ is a very difficult thing. And that they would fail at that, and they would fail at that, and every year they thought they needed to be saved again. Guys, it's difficult to live a life worthy of Christ. It's a challenge. Why is it a challenge? Because there's high expectations of that. You're to give him everything. You're to give him everything. And Paul says, I pray that you're able to live that life. Not only do I pray that you're able to live that life, he prays for specific things so that you might bear that fruit. He says, in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, so you have to grow in the knowledge of God, you have to be strengthened by uh, his power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks. Notice who is doing all that in you. That is God. God is the one who strengthens you. God is the one who gives you knowledge. God is the one who gives you power. God is the one who gives you direction. But we have to stay in touch with that. So as God gives us new life, there is also an expectation that we will live that life for Him. And He gives us guidance. He gives us purpose. He gives us power. He gives us strength as we accomplish these things that we might give thanks to the Father. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. This is what He's done for us. He's taken us from death and has given us life. He's taken us from darkness and He has allowed us to see the light and to live in the light. He's allowed us to shine like the stars in the heaven. He has done that for us. How has He done that for us? If you go just a little bit further into verse 15... He identifies who Christ is, and he tells us that Christ is supreme over all. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So he talks about the resurrection there, and he says he's even the firstborn from the dead. And in this, it gives him supremacy. But it is a hymn that he is quoting here in chapter 1 of Colossians, and that hymn is identifying who Christ is. And what the hymn is identifying is that Christ is above all and, and, and is truly all things are created by him and in him. In other words, who has authority over all things is Christ. And having authority over all things, he has called us for a purpose, for a reason, for God's will. 
He is the one who has made it possible. For not only is He the one who all things were created by and through, but He is the one who sacrificed Himself so that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. So Paul talks about some of the things that we grasp as the church of God, as the people of God. Then Paul talks about the one who has made that possible. He identifies that as Christ, and he talks about Christ's supremacy over all things, over darkness, over powers, over thrones, over everything. See, remember, as we look at the world, we see powerful elements in the world. Maybe we look around and we think of the United States as being a powerful element. Or we think of another nation of having certain power or strength. You think in Paul's day, and you think of power of thrones and powers that upon the earth, Rome and the power of Rome. And what Paul is basically saying is whatever the most powerful thing you can think of on the earth is, Christ is supreme to it. And he gave himself so that you might have life so that you might have this call, so that you might be a part of this church, so that you might bear the fruit that he has called us to. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that is everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. His sacrifice reconciles all things to him. All things on the earth, all things in heaven. It is his sacrifice that makes that possible. As we unite our lives together as a church, what we see is that we are brought here by the sacrifice of another. It's not something that we have done. It is not something that we have uh, participated in in our life, but it is one who has given us the ability to do that. We are called to follow his will, We are called to seek his wisdom. We are called to seek his direction. And we are called to be motivated by faith and love to endure for the hope that has been promised to us. But Paul says, because of this taking place in my life and because of the power of the gospel in my life, it transformed me for a call in my life. In other words, the gospel coming into my life and transforming my my life brought me to a place of a call. Listen to what he says right here at the end of chapter 1. He says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I feel up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I become its servant by the commission God gave me, present you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which is so powerfully works in me. Listen to what Paul is saying. Paul says, I have been called to what purpose? He has been called to complete Christ's affliction. Notice what he says in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I feel up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. What is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction? The death of Christ upon the cross reconciled us to God. 
death upon the cross cleansed us of our sin. It took that which was crimson and made it white as snow. What is missing in the afflictions of Christ? There's a couple of ways that you can understand it. One way that you can understand it is that the early church understood that all their afflictions were tied to the afflictions of Christ. So in other words, whether you're looking at Paul or Peter or any of the other martyrs, they would have understood that their afflictions were tied to the afflictions of Christ upon the cross. But I think Paul, in in a real sense, believed that he should share in the afflictions with Christ. In other words, when he accepted the gospel and it changed his life, Paul actually believed that he was supposed to be like Christ. There was a popular movement a while back, and I think it might still be going on, but it was the WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? And people talked about being like Christ. So when you face some ethical dilemma or some moral dilemma, you just ask yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation? And that's fine. I think that there's a point to that. And I think we should be like Christ. And I think our ethics should model the ethics of Christ. I think the ethics that are portrayed in the Sermon on the Mount are wonderful ethics. And I think that should be a part of our life. But when we say we want to be like Christ, what do we really mean by that? Does it mean that we just simply act like him ethically? I don't think that's what the scriptures mean. What Paul seems to think in his life is when he says, I want to be like my Savior, I want to be like my Lord, it encompasses who Jesus was. Philippians chapter 2, have the same mind that Christ Jesus had. Guys, what Paul's talking about is not mere ethical actions in life. What Paul's talking about is sharing in the cross itself. Sharing in the afflictions that Christ felt in this world because of who he was and what he did. Paul says that he has united us together based in faith and hope and love. He has brought us to a point where we can discover his will for our life and that he can promote us to that will by giving us knowledge and wisdom and a call and a purpose. Who has done this for us? It is Christ the one who in all things were created and the one who sacrificed himself upon a cross so that those things may be reconciled to him. What does that inspire us to do? It inspires us to be like our Lord and Savior, Christ himself. Paul basically says, I am willing to give everything to the body of Christ. I am willing to give everything to his church and to suffer the same afflictions that my Lord and Savior suffered so that they might become those who God desires them to be. And I struggle to do this, and I seek my energy from him and him alone. He says, we are proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy. In other words, Paul says, this is the end that I want. I teach, I admonish, I preach, I minister, I do all these things so that people may know who Christ is and they might know the joy of experiencing Christ in their life. And I am willing to suffer the affliction of Christ to make that possible. It strikes me that so often, as the church of Christ and as the church of God, 
We are willing to pray for the world. We are willing to judge the world. We are willing to coach the world. We are willing to correct however we may correct the world. But are we willing to suffer the afflictions of Christ for the world? As the church of God, we must be willing to suffer the same afflictions of Christ for those who are in the world. That is the love of God. And I do not say it lightly. For the afflictions that Christ suffered was death, and not just death, but death upon a cross. But I do not believe for a moment the words of Christ were empty when he looked at his disciples and said, if you are going to follow me, then you must take up your cross and follow me. It is easy to make proclamations. It is easy to cast dispersions. In many ways, it is easy to even pray at a distance. It is difficult to love as God loves. And it is most certainly difficult to suffer afflictions for even those that may still be your enemies. But when we say we want to be like Christ, that's what we must do. Do not cheapen it. Do not lessen it. I pray that we may be able to embrace it and live it. It is one of the highest calls in the world. And it is a call that we have been brought to by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. As we see the struggle, the hurt, the pain, and the agony of this world, May God open up avenues for us to serve and serve him mightily. May we depend upon his energy and his grace, his mercy and his love and his power to bring us to the place that we need to be. And may we be willing to embrace even the afflictions of Christ to share the world or share the love of God with the world that is around us. May that be our prayer. But may even more importantly, that be our life. Let us pray. God, we come before you this morning. We thank you for people like Paul. We thank you for those who embraced your call. We thank you for those who've embraced the love of God and the power of God. And I pray, Lord, that we might do the same. As we have been called through your mercy, your grace, and your love, and as we have been sustained by your power, may also, Lord, we live a life where we will sacrifice whatever we are called to sacrifice so that others may find your love, your grace, and your mercy. May we never cheapen that call. And may we live according to that call. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning we'll have a time of invitation. Any decisions that need to be made in a public fashion, feel, for, uh, feel free to come forward. Okay. We'll